doing this morning? Oof, rough crowd. Watch out, you're going to pull that one down quick. Let's try that one again. Good morning, everybody. Y'all doing well this morning? Good. I'd like to welcome you to the well here at STSA. A little thing that we like to say is that we are an ordinary place where extraordinary things happen every Sunday because people come and people find our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you meet Jesus on a Sunday morning, you cannot leave the same way. So that's why I like that song we just sang there at the end, that we're open the eyes of our heart, Lord, to see you. Because I know that if I see you today, then that's going to be the best day in the whole wide world, even regardless of what happens in the Skins game today or any football game today or my fantasy league. I know it's going to be a great day, and that's all we have to hold on to. What we are doing here today is today we are celebrating. All right, we are celebrating. Y'all know that we wrapped up the Build Your Kingdom campaign last week. I wasn't here, but we wrapped it up, and today we are celebrating. And I told that to some people that, what, we said, what are you going to do this Sunday? So we're celebrating. They say, that's great. We collected the $2 million. And I say, no, we didn't collect the $2 million. But we're celebrating anyway. And the reason why we're celebrating, it's our topic here today, is because we don't celebrate what we did or what even what God did. What we celebrate is what God is going to do. And that's what I want to talk about here today when it comes to laying hold of God's promise. Just first, a little recap, just so you're all on the same page. What we were talking about the past several weeks was raising um, uh, money. We were trying to raise $2 million in order to buy that piece of property back there. We fell short of our goal, okay? We did not accomplish $2 million. We raised, raised about a half million dollars, $500,000, which by any means is a tremendous accomplishment, and you deserve a big hand for that. Big hand for yourselves. Clap for yourselves, okay? Thank you. A clap for the people who are online or watching. Thanks so many people's generosity. We raised a ton of money. And that's really, really a great thing. We didn't reach the $2 million goal. But like we talked about last week, that doesn't mean that we failed. Not by any means, because we're still, as I told all the members of the church this past week, we're negotiating all right, with the, the seller. And we're still collecting from anyone who's willing to give a donation. And we're still trying to talk to people in different avenues to try to collect more money. And we're negotiating with the seller as much as we can to try to see if we can make the two sides meet. And I'm confident that we can. And my confidence is not based on my thinking that we're going to collect $2 million. I told this to someone, or someone told this to me a couple weeks ago when we were nearing the end. And we said, I don't know if we're going to make the $2 million. I don't know if we're going to make the $2 million. And the person told me this. He said, God promised us the building. He didn't promise us $2 million. The $2 million was our idea of how to get the building. And I believe that God's promise for the building is still true and still holds fast very, very, very uh, firmly. We thought the method to get there was going to be we make some announcements, people send us their money, and we finish the whole deal. But what God is saying is we're still going to get there, but sometimes the, the, the distance between point A and point B isn't always a straight line. And that's like what, like I said, is the, is the campaign is still going in the sense that we're still always open to donations anytime anyone wants to donate. Anyone knows any friends, any businesses. Like we're trying some different ways to to get at new sources. But as far as, our, as far as we're concerned right here, we're taking a shift in direction beginning today and really beginning next week, but I'll lay the foundation for it today. What we are doing is not celebrating what you did or what I did or even what God did. We're celebrating what God is going to do because the crazy thing about Christianity is that we believe not necessarily in looking at what God has done as much as what God is going to do. There's two ways to live life. 
You can walk by sight or you can walk by faith. The Bible makes it very, 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 very clear. There's two ways to live life. You can go with what you see is what you get, or you can believe that there's something beyond what your eyes can see, that there's a spiritual world that exists beyond your eyes and beyond sometimes your logic even. In the, lo in the, in the logical world, in the we walk by sight, life goes one, two, then three. You go one, and then you go two, and then you go three. That's walk by sight. And walk by faith is actually the opposite. You don't go one, two, three. You go three, two, one. And walk by sight, you start at the start, and you map out your course, and you get to a certain place. And walk by faith, it's different. God determines where he wants you to end up and where he wants the plan to be in the end, and then he plans the steps to get you there. Walk by faith doesn't start at the beginning. It starts at the end and goes backwards. A couple verses to kind of give an example. Jeremiah 1, 5 and 9 through 10. God says to the prophet Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Behold, I put my words in your mouth. See, I have this day set you over nations, over kingdoms, to root you out and pull, you, and pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and plant. Jeremiah is a young kid, a baby, an infant, before even an infant. Before. God says, this boy is going to be a great ruler. And I made him a great ruler. He's a baby. How can you say a baby is a ruler? How can you say a baby is destroying and throwing down? How can you say a baby is building and planting? Because that's how God works. God writes the end, and then he goes backwards and fills in the blanks. So because I want this to happen in the end, then I'm going to plan and order his steps this way. Another verse from Acts chapter 9 about St. Paul. When St. Paul was astray and was a persecutor of Christians, then all of a sudden he saw the light, and he came back to Christ, and there was a guy named Ananias, and God told Ananias, I want you to go and preach to this Paul guy, baptize him. He believes now. And Ananias said, you know, I'm kind of scared of him because he's like a terrorist and he hates all Christians. And God said this to Ananias. He said, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings and the children of Israel. I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. God said, no, no, no. Ananias, you don't see that I wrote in the beginning, before there was, I wrote, this is who Paul is. And you see this as Paul. But I know this is Paul, and I go from finish to start, not start to finish. Now, with that said, let me, let me answer the question that's probably on several people's minds as I'm saying this. Does this negate our free will? Okay, this means that it doesn't matter what we do, and there's no free will, and predestination, all this kind of stuff. Absolutely not in the smallest way. I'm not talking about God removes our free will. I'm saying I, as a child of God, go to my father as my child may come to me and say, Daddy, I'll do whatever it is that you want me to do. Daddy, whatever it is that you tell me, I will do it. And the daddy then has a plan. The daddy says, okay, I want you to end up, let's say, a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer. Or I want you to be this. So I order your steps based on the plan that I have. It's not negating our free will because at any moment in time, we could reject it. Like St. Paul could have rejected it. Jeremiah could have rejected it. So don't, don't take it in the wrong direction. I'm talking about for those who submit themselves voluntarily to God and say, God, whatever you choose for me, I'm going to do it. And you tell me, go left, I'm going to go left. So God has a destination in mind, and then he plans the steps. For example, let's say me or you or whoever. God knows, let's say me. God knows that one day he wants his funny little boy to be a priest in the church and be over here. So you know what God does? God says, you know what? I really want this boy, me, to reach out to people who aren't being reached by most churches. 
I want this boy to be able to reach out to a, a, a culture and a community that, especially in the Orthodox Church, has been neglected for a long time. Okay, hasn't really been reached. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make this boy very American. And I'm going to, from a young age, make him, even though his parents take him to church every Sunday and teach him to church, I'm going to make this boy so that the church has never, like, he gets into it, but he doesn't really get into it. I want him to understand this life, okay, this life outside, because I want him to do this when he gets to an older age. You see how that works? God plans the steps. That's why I remember when we were young and we took a trip to Egypt as a family, and, you know, anytime you go as a tourist, especially in Egypt, like, the price is ten times if you're a tourist. Okay, so if you're, so my parents told me, don't open your mouth, okay? Don't, don't, don't even look at the guy behind the counter because you, and then we had the shorts and the hat and the jersey and all this kind of stuff. So about as American looking as you can possibly be. God had a plan. God had a plan. God said, this is what I want him to be. So therefore, I ordered his steps this way, not the other way around. Does that make sense? That's walk by faith, not walk by sight. We have a sovereign Lord. And that sovereign Lord comes up with a perfect plan for our lives and then he orders our steps accordingly. The key is, everything I'm talking about here today, I'm applying to the church and individually as well. So I'm saying it applies to, uh, like I'm talking individually, but it also applies to the church. The key is understanding the difference between two terms that you'll see them both written about in Scripture. The term inheritance and the term possession. Inheritance versus possession. possession. What's the difference? An inheritance, simply put my own definition is something I promise you today and give you tomorrow. Logic, right? An inheritance is something I promise you today, but I don't give you until tomorrow. What's an inheritance? An inheritance is after I die, you know, this trust fund. Or no, not after I die. Uh, after I die, this, uh, my will. Okay, or trust fund when you turn 18. Or, you know, like, if I ever move to California, I'll give you whatever. It's an inheritance, something that I promise you today but you do not possess it today, but you inherited it today. I think of an inheritance like will call. Y'all know like will call at a concert? So I phone him up and I say, two tickets for this lovely lady right here. Okay, and I paid for it. And I say, you go to will call at this time, whatever hour on whatever day, three weeks from now. And you go to will call and the tickets are there. The tickets are hers, but she doesn't have them yet. That's an inheritance. She didn't earn them. She didn't buy them. She didn't do anything really to warrant them. It's just a free gift for me. Like a, an inheritance isn't something that you earn, but it is something that you can lose, right? It's something, not something that you earn, but it's certainly something that you can lose if you don't abide by the terms. This is such an important concept for us to understand because everything in the spiritual life is inheritance, and we think in terms of possession. Two verses. Colossians 1.12 and Ephesians 1.18. says that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? A few years back, we did an entire weekend conference on this one verse to talk about what does it mean when the Bible says that we have the riches of the glory of his inheritance for all the saints. Okay, that's talking about all of us, that those who are in Christ have a rich inheritance. Next verse, Colossians 1.12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints, in the light. If there's one message that everywhere I could preach this one message, and if I could just like put this on my forehead and say, Father Anthony, give us a message. The message is simply this. We are rich in Christ. 
Like if there's one thing I want to be like tattooed on my forehead is we are rich in Christ. That those of us, too many of us are living like beggars and like poor people because we don't appreciate and understand and value the rich inheritance that we have in Christ. Yes, we don't have possession in our hands, but we have a rich, rich inheritance, a promise of a great reward to come to all those who are in Christ. What is that promise? The Bible says that Jesus is the first fruits. Okay, he's the first fruits of the brethren, meaning that anything that you see in Jesus, that's our inheritance. The Bible says in the end, Jesus sits on a throne. It says we sit next to him on his throne. We share his throne. The Bible talks about how Jesus received, he had, he, was, he, had, he had the spirit of God inside him, okay? The spirit of Jesus, that same spirit, the Bible says, was given to each one of us. So what he had inside him, we have the same spirit inside of us. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us. We have power to tread on serpents and scorpions and every power of the enemy. We have joy that no one can take from you. We have peace that surpasses all understanding. We have richness in Christ, but too many of us don't understand this richness. And we live as poor and as beggars. Let me tell it to you this way, a different way. Inheritance comes from your ancestors. So you inherit, like think about it like biologically. What I inherited came from my parents, all right, which came from their parents, came from their parents, came from their parents. Like you inherit biologically based on your ancestry, all right? That's why you inherited different genes and I inherited. We have different parents. Who is our spiritual ancestors? We have two, two main ones. We have two spiritual ancestors who each gave us, left us an inheritance. Left, huh? Adam, okay? And the second Adam is who? Is Jesus. It's Christ. So the first Adam is Adam, okay? Adam means man, okay? So in Adam, like he represented all of man, and Adam left us an inheritance. And that inheritance is corruption, sin, death, all kinds of bad stuff. Adam left us an inheritance of selfishness. An inheritance of temper, inheritance of impatience, an, an, an inheritance of road rage, okay? All kinds of inheritances from Adam. Christ left us an inheritance as well. Who's stronger? Christ, first Adam, actually you're on this side. First Adam, which is Adam. Second Adam, which is Christ. Who's stronger, first or second Adam? Who's stronger, first or second Adam? Wrong. You're lying. You're right, but you're lying. You're right. Second Adam is stronger. But if you look at the way we live our lives, we live our lives as if the first Adam is the strongest and the second Adam is weak. That's how we live our lives. Because we focus much more on what we inherited from the first Adam. The weakness, the defeat, the sin, the problems. And we focus very little on the, on the holiness and the power and the victory that the second Adam gave us. You're right. Um, it was a trick question. Okay, you're right. The, the second Adam is stronger. But in reality, the way we live our lives you, you couldn't realize that. St. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 1 verse 14. It says, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Forgive me, this is not how we live. This is how we live. We don't live like this. We don't live like this. We don't live like people who are sealed. Sealed means no escape. Lock the doors, no one's getting out of here. What's inside here? What is inside here is the guarantee of our inheritance. 
Like I always say, and for those who took the, the membership class, we talked about this in the membership class, of the Holy Spirit. Why is the Holy Spirit our guarantee? Because you know what the Holy Spirit is? The Holy Spirit, if you want to know that you have a rich inheritance in Christ and you forget, remember always that God has given us his very spirit. Jesus has given us his very spirit. Why is that important? If I invite you to my house and I say, I need you to sit in my house, to house sit for me until I come back. All right, and when I come back, I'm going to give you a million dollars. Ten million dollars when I come back. Take care of my goldfish, I'll give you ten million dollars. So you say, I'm not stupid. Like, how do I know that you're really going to, I'm going to sit here for a week. How do I know you're really going to come back? And I say, okay, you know what? Michael, my son, I leave Michael here. And then I leave. I say, I come back in a week, and I give you $10 million if you give me back my son. You're going to believe me or not believe me then? How about if I don't take off my, take my son? Uh, obviously, this is not really possible. If I take my elbow, and I leave my elbow there. If I take my left uh, uh, lung, if I take my aorta, and I take my very aorta, and I say, okay, here's my aorta. When I come back, if you give me back my aorta in one piece, I'll give you $10 million. Would you believe me I'm going to come back? Yeah, because I need that. That's an important piece. What did God do when he left us on this earth? God left. He's ascended. He said, don't worry, I'm coming back. You know how sometimes we play hide and seek with the kids and we want to keep them quiet? Okay, no, I'll be back. Yeah, yeah, no, don't worry. I'll be back. Is that what Jesus did? No, yeah, I'll be back. Say, hey, wait a minute. How do we know you're coming back? He said, okay, you know how I'm coming back? Stay tuned. Ten days from now, I'm going to send my very spirit. My spirit. We underestimate the value. The spirit of God which dwelt inside Christ, that same spirit was given to us. We're sealed with that spirit. That's the guarantee of our inheritance. Because you know why? Because I know this spirit inside me. I know where he's headed. And I know that, again, I, I said it at the beginning, so don't, don't, don't just hear part of me, that I'm talking about those who give themselves to Christ and surrender themselves to Christ and abide by Christ. I'm not, I'm not saying everyone, okay? I'm not saying it like that. I'm saying those who surrender. I know that the path here, I know where it ends up. It ends up in an inglorious inheritance. Think of the story of the prodigal son. Okay, most people are familiar with that story. There's a story about a boy who lived in a house with all kinds of riches. And then he thought he could make it on his own, so he left the house. And he lived with the pigs and with the swine, and he had a miserable life. And then all of a sudden, it dawned on him. What dawned on him that made him change his mind and decide to go back? He said, wait a minute. What am I doing? I'm the dumbest kid in the world. Why am I dumb? Because I have a rich inheritance waiting for me. The inheritance didn't go away because he sinned. See how that works? The inheritance didn't go away. The inheritance went away when he stopped believing in it. And when he stopped chasing after it. And when he started believing that he was with the swine, that he was with the swine. But once he came to his senses and said, wait a minute, I don't belong with swine. I'm a rich kid. I have a rich dad. My dad is dead. Big Daddy Warbucks. Then he made it back in the house and the rich inheritance was all his. It was all waiting for him. That's what we need to do. We have a rich inheritance in Christ. But the key is, Richness is the inheritance, not the possession. Possession is different than inheritance. Our problem is, we look in our hands and say, Father Anthony said great words. We have rich inheritance in Christ. Okay, where is it? My hands are empty. Father Anthony is wrong. Father Anthony is wrong? First of all, we need. First of all, that very sentence. Okay. Is it that I'm wrong? Or is it that it's, the difference between an inheritance and a possession. Y'all have heard this parable before, Matthew 13, 31. Jesus, one of his famous parables about the kingdom, says the kingdom is like a mustard seed 
which a man took, sowed in his field, and which indeed is the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. What's the message of this parable? When God wants to build the kingdom, when God wants to give his riches, when God wants to do a great work in your life, he does it not with trees, but with seeds. God gives seeds, not trees. God gives promises, not possessions. Look, sometimes God gives trees. Sometimes God just says, you know what? I give you everything that you ever wanted. That is a very, very, very rare exception. You want to know what God does? God gives seeds. God plants a seed. And that seed, that seed, just like the analogy sometimes given in the scripture, is like the seed inside the belly of a woman. Okay? When a woman becomes pregnant. Once the seed is inside, the seed is in there. But I don't look pregnant. Oh, you're pregnant. But I don't feel pregnant. Oh, you will soon. Oh, but there's nothing coming out. Oh, you stay tuned. Something's coming out. Because once the seed is in, it's just a matter of time. And the expression the Bible often uses is the fullness of time. Once the seed is in, once that mustard seed is in the ground, I put it in. Where's the tree? That's not how it works. When God wants to work in our life in a rich way, he doesn't give trees, he gives seeds. He doesn't give possessions, he gives promises. Look from page one of the scripture to the end. Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. Everyone will say, I'm a descendant of Abraham. How many kids did Abraham, God gave him that promise? Abraham waited one year. How many kids did he have? Two years. How many kids did he have? Three years, four years, five years, six years, 10, 12, 15, 20. 24 years. How many kids did he have? 24 years and 364 days. How many kids did Abraham have? After God said, you're going to be the father of many nations. Lord, I waited 24 and a half years. How many do I got now? I don't need bazillions. Give me three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, something like that. It wasn't until... God made him wait 25 years. And then it wasn't, even, it wasn't even the tree. It was just the stump, a tiny little stump. Say, look, Abraham, you have the most kids in the whole wide world. There he is. There's that little guy. And, I, and, and the, like when God changed Abraham's, Abraham's original name was Abram. And God changed his name to Abraham, which means the father of many. And when, when in the olden days, your name had meaning. Like when you said my name is, it was like a description of your character. So Abraham... I always picture, like, walked into a bar, okay, a uh, restaurant, okay, and would say, hey, buddy, uh, you know, what's your name? And they say, yeah, my name is Frank. Hey, what's your name? My name is Father of Many. Hey, Father of Many. How many kids you got? There he is right there, okay, but Father of Many. Like, it's even an embarrassment to him to have this Father of Many as a name when he only had one little guy. Uh, Moses. God came to Moses and said, Moses, when he was young, you're going to free my people. You're going to defeat the Egyptians. You're going to free them, my Israelites, my people from slavery. So Moses said, okay, you know what? This is a great idea. I'm going to start by killing that one Egyptian. God said, no, no, no. That's not how you do it. No, no, no. That's not how we're going to do it. You know how we're going to do it? You're going to go to the desert. You're going to wait there 40 years. 40 years, God, why? Because the seed that I planted in you when you're young takes time to become a big, strong tree. I'm not trying. If it's a mushroom I'm trying to raise, mushroom overnight. If I'm trying to, weeds, weeds overnight. But Moses, for you, big oak tree, big mustard seed tree, takes some time. David, anointed king, ran for 17 years of his life like a crazy man. 
Once the seed was there, it's inevitable he'd become king. Joseph, another example. Someone who God said, your brothers are all going to bow to you. Okay, but at the beginning they weren't bowing to him. They threw him in a well. Then he became a slave. And God said, hey, take your time. The seed is in. It's just a matter of time. During the times in life where you have a seed but no possession, where you have the promise but you don't have that tree, you have the seed, not the tree, the promise, not the possession, you care for that seed. You hold on to that seed. And what you're going to discover is that promise. You keep the promise, like keep it, and in essence or in actuality what you're going to discover is that promise is what's keeping you. And I think the only thing that kept Abraham going for those 25 years was that promise of God. Hey, you're not going to have it. Hey, God put the seed in. God put the, the promise there. And Abraham held that promise and held that promise and held that promise. When all of life was telling him you're not going to have it. Joseph is a more clear example. Like I said, you're going to be a strong man. I'm in prison. I'm a slave. I'm in a well. But I have that promise. And I know that God who made that promise is going to come through on what it is that he said. It's just a matter of time. That's why I say today we are celebrating as a church. Not because we raised $2 million and not because we have the building, but because God promised us that we have that building. Oops, sorry. Because God promised us that we have that building. And once God made the promise, that's it. I'll remind you all of the promise. And I, I know I remind you every week, but I won't do it anymore. But it's just such a good promise. All right. And I'm going to go to say it quickly. But for those who haven't heard me tell the story of where it came from, don't think I'm just crazy and it came out of nowhere. Go to the website. Go to OneBrickArlington.com. Okay, go to One Brick Arlington. You watch, I recorded a seven-minute video of where this came from. And I'm just telling you the final piece of it, but you have to hear the whole story because it's a really cool story, but I don't want to bore you with it. Promise that God gave, it says to us as a congregation, as a church, says, I have heard your prayer, and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. And God gave us that promise when we were outside that building. And now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As I told y'all before, I'm a cynical person. I'm not a miracle person. I'm not a God spoke to me person. That ain't me. But this day, when this promise came to me, when I was sitting outside in that parking lot, as I told y'all before, this day, after being cynical and skeptical, skeptical, and, and forgive me, like I'll be honest, tell the truth, standing in the way of this building for the longest time, me, I was the one who stood against it primarily, and I'm the one who didn't want it, and I'm the one who, that was me, this day, everything changed. And this day, I changed my prayer. I stopped saying, God, if it's your will. I, I, this day, God made it clear to me, this is my will. Stop asking me if it's my will. I'm telling you, it's my will. Now we need to get to work to figure out how to make it happen. And that's the prayer shifted this day. Because once the seed is in the oven, once the cake, is, once the turkey or the cake is in the oven, give it time, it's going to come. Put it at the right temperature, it's going to come. Don't pull it out too soon, it's going to come. Once God gave the promise to us, then we are not holding on to hope for the sake of hope. We're holding on to a promise that God gave to us. What are you waiting for from God? Let's be honest. What are you waiting for from God? What answer to prayer are you waiting for, hoping for, dreaming of? What are you frustrated that God has not done yet? Well, I want you to know that maybe it isn't that God hasn't done it. Maybe you're looking for the wrong thing. Maybe you're looking for trees when God is giving seeds. That's why I told you this a thousand times, and I'll say it a thousand more times. You all, you hate my guts. I'm, I'm telling you. You come to me with a problem, and you say this, this, and that, and God hasn't, 
Nine out of ten times, my response to you is the same. Are you reading your Bible? You hate my guts. You say, I, I know I need to read my Bible, but right now I need an answer. I got a problem with my boss. I don't need to read my Bible. Hmm. Did you read your Bible? Are you consistent in your Bible? Sick mom. Whatever it may be. Uh, work, relationship, whatever. Hmm. Are you reading your Bible? There's always my answer. You know why? Because the answer to your problem is not a tree. It's a seed. And if you're not consistent in your time with God and receiving promises of God, then you know what? You have no hope. You have no hope because the hope comes in seeds. And we see little seeds and we say, oh, what's the big deal about a little seed? No, those seeds are precious. Those seeds are where that big tree, we say, oh, I want this tree. God, give me this tree. You, you can't have the tree. You don't just pick up a tree and plant it in your yard. You want that tree? You go do with that man who has that tree that he picked up a seed. And God is throwing seeds, throwing seeds. And we see the seeds. Ah, what's this? Ah, this Bible verse. What's the big deal? Ah, I read this. And I didn't understand it. Genealogy, so-and-so begot so-and-so. What do I care if begot so-and-so? No, man, those are seeds. And a smart farmer, a smart one, knows that the more seeds I plant, the more likelihood of success. You know how strong a seed is? You know how strong a seed is? If I take a seed and I throw it in the ground, okay, in, in the, the, the yard, and sometimes, you know, they fall like under the sidewalk. You know what that seed can do in the face of that concrete? That seed can bust through concrete, can it? You know, when you see in the sidewalk, you see little things of grass? Seed, concrete. I'll take seed. Seed wins. And it's the same thing. I don't care how Forgive my expression. How miserable your situation is. I don't care how hopeless it may seem. I don't care how much, like I said, we're staring at this building. We need $2 million. We raised a quarter of it, which, again, tremendous accomplishment. Like, God, like I'm not saying this is not a get more money, okay? We accept more money, okay? But this is not a get more money at all. This is a thank you for all your generosity and donation. I'm speaking especially to the people who are watching on this camera. Because the people from all over the world have been giving money. I told you. Australia and England and Canada. So, so many kind people. This is not that. This is a thank you for what you have done. But what I'm saying is we stand here. And we needed this. And we got this. And we say we got it. We needed this. We got this. We got it. Because we got the seed. We got the promise. And as long as we have that, I'm not worried. We're going to hold on to God's promise, and God's promise is going to hold on to us. But with that said, with that said, I have to talk about the other side now. I have to be honest. And I have to be fair. So that means God gave us a promise. We're going to kick back and go on vacation, do whatever it is that we want, because God promised. Oh, no, no, we'll pray, too. No, no, we'll pray. We'll pray on vacation. You promised. Gave us a seed. This is great. Going to happen. We just say a prayer here now and then, and then celebrate, right? Is that how we're going to do it? Inheritance comes from promise. Possession comes from obedience. Go back to my example. I tell you, we'll call. I purchased this ticket. In three weeks, you go to this ticket window. You tell them my name is whatever. You pick up the ticket. Paid for. Promise. Inheritance. Possession means you have to do what I told you to do. It means you got to get in your car, drive over to the Verizon Center. you got to go to the right window. you got to make sure you have your ID. 
you can lose possession. Like, there can be a disconnect between possession and inheritance, right? Between possession and inheritance. I can promise my child that when I die, this is what you're going to have. But if you curse me before I die, I'm not going to give you what I told you I'm going to give you. If you are not in good standing as my, like, trust fund is you 18 and, you know, you're in college, you get this. But if you say I'm not going to college and I'm saying you're not getting a trust fund. I have the right as the owner to set the rules and it's your obedience that determines possession. Does that make sense? Inheritance comes from promise, but possession comes from obedience. We're going to go back to a story where, again, forgive my expression, some of the dumbest stories in the Bible. Some of the stories in the Bible, and again, forgive my expression, that makes you look at God and say, God, like, really? Like, God, this is what you're thinking? Like, we're going to look at God and say, God, you have a brain? Like, forgive my expression. We're going to look at these two stories and going to make us question and say, God, do you know what you're doing? Because it seems like you have no clue what you're doing. And we've all been in that situation where it seems like God is telling you, yeah, go this way. And then he pushes you this way. You know what you're doing? We're going to go back to a time when the Israelites were moving into the promised land. Okay, we're talking about the temple. We've been talking about Ezra and building the temple. We're talking about way, 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 way before then. We're talking about in the book of Joshua. God's people, okay, context. God's people, Abraham, so let's start with Abraham. God told Abraham, go to this land called Canaan. It's my land that or, well, we're going to have a home together. And Abraham went to this land and his son Isaac and Jacob. And Joseph was sold as a slave into Egypt. All right. And when Joseph was there, he was reigning over Egypt. But eventually, Joseph's ancestors were not reigning over Egypt. And they became slaves in Egypt. This is 400 years after Joseph. So now, this is the, before the time of Moses. The Israelites are slaves in this land of Egypt. And their longing is to go back to Canaan where they can be free. And they had so many promises that says, I'm going to bring you back to that land. And I'm going to take you back to that land. And so many things about that land. But they hear they are stuck as slaves. Fast forward the story. Moses comes in. Ten plagues cross the Red Sea. Pillar of fire, pillar of cloud, they're in the wilderness, and they're home free from the bad guys, and they're about to enter the promised land. So now God is about to go from promise, they had promise, they had seed, all these years, God is about to take them to possession. And look about God's strategy in order to do so. We're going to pick up the story in Joshua chapter 5. So it was, okay, when all the kings of the Amorites, who were on the west side of the Jordan, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over, that their heart melted, and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. Sorry, I forgot one part of the context. As they were approaching the land, God parted the Red Sea. And then they came. Here's the city of Jericho right here, the capital which they need to invade, and all the bad guys. There's a Jordan River between them and the capital. So what happens? Just like he did with the Red Sea, God dried up the Jordan River, and he parted the, 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 the river, and they walked straight through it. So these kings, when they saw this group of people who were slaves destroy Pharaoh and his entire army, the strongest nation in the world, was defeated and killed by a group of slaves. The strongest nation was Egypt. They were destroyed. They went through the wilderness. They defeated every country that came and attacked them. They defeated them. They get to the river. The river parts in front of them, and they cross over it. You're the Canaanites, the Amorites, okay, these guys on the other side. How are you feeling as they cross over the river? Are you feeling very confident? 
These people took down the Red Sea and the Jordan River. These people don't go shopping at the grocery store like me and you. The bread comes down from heaven to feed them. These people, I don't have nothing to do with these people. The Canaanites, the Amorites, these bad guys, how are they feeling? The Bible says what? Since they crossed over, their heart melted. There was no spirit inside them. They were running for their lives. They said, we are in big trouble because these people are coming after us. They're ripe for the taking. They're ripe for the taking. You march into that city and you, boom, you take them down. They are scared. You negotiate a plea deal or whatever it is, or you crush them. Look what God says. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, I got a great idea. I got a great idea. Make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at what is known as the Hill of Foreskins. Okay, obviously, you know what? So it was when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. I beg your pardon? We took down Pharaoh. We took down these countries. Man, we busted through the Jordan River. These people are scared. Let's get them. And God says to all the men, anyone who says that God is sexist, by the way, this story will tell you that God has mercy on the women. Okay, All the grown men, here's how you take down this country. You circumcise. I ain't no military strategist. But that doesn't seem like the best way to prepare for hand-to-hand combat. Let it go. Maybe God is going to come through on the, uh, chapter 6. The Bible says in, in chapter 5, they were circumcised. They were just laying there. Okay, uh, you know, when a, when a person gets circumcised, okay, they're in incredible pain for days. They can't move. They're just lying there. Okay, God, we'll let that one go. What's next on the agenda? Chapter 6. Now, after they semi-recovered from this, the hill of foreskins, okay, now Jericho was securely shut up because the children of Israel. Jericho was scared to death. They shut all their, their, their walls, their gates. They're terrified. None went out, none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I've given Jericho into your hand. What's that? Is that promise or possession? I've given Jericho into your hand. Promise. No, it's not, God. Nope, Jericho's not in my hands. What my hand is, hill of foreskins, okay? But you said, this promise given. Now, to get possession, obedience. Look what it says. See, I have given Jericho into your hand. It's king, it's mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. All you shall go around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. He's saying, here's what you do. You march around the city. Okay, and then we do what? The next day, you march around the city. Okay, day three, march around the city one more time. Like sitting ducks marching around the city. But take your horn with you in case they can't see you. Take your horn. God's really testing us on this obedience one. It gets better. Seventh day. But the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times. And the priests shall now not just carry the horns, but blow the trumpets. And shall come to pass, when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up every man straight before him. Look, I ain't no military genius, okay? 
I used to play Battleship. That's about the extent, okay, of my military background. But I know that this cannot be the best strategy to attack these guys. They are sitting up in their fortress, sitting up on top of the, of the castle and, and the gates. And we are going to, in broad daylight, like schmucks, march around the city. And in case they can't see us, we're going to play our trumpet, a cute little diddly song, so they can see us. And we're not going to have, God, God didn't say, take weapons. Okay, God, at least we're going to do that. Give us guns. Okay, invent a rocket launcher like you're a god. Like, okay, this may be a good strategy. God says, no, just march around like sitting ducks. And by the way, the whole circumcision thing, don't forget about that because that's going to make you nice and weak. Like, it's not really the best time for circumcision. Can we discuss this later? God gave the worst strategy in the history of all mankind. The worst strategy in the history of all mankind. What was the end result of it? What was the end result? Victory. Y'all can read the rest of it when you go home. They win. Their king is in their hand. The bad guy's king, in their hand. The walls fall down. City, destroyed. Good guys, win. What's the lesson? Why did God tell them, be circumcised before you fight? Have no weapons in your hand when you go against the city. What? What was God's lesson? What was the lesson God was trying to teach them and teach us as well? It's such an important lesson because I talked about this rich, 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 rich inheritance. And now the bridge that connects me to the possession, something called obedience. You know why? Here's the lesson. Obedience is greater than strength. Obedience is greater than than strength. Your strength will not win you this city. Your skills will not take down the walls. Your experience is of no value in this war. But your obedience makes you invincible. Your obedience makes you invincible. Prophet Zechariah, in prophesying about Zerubbabel, who was the first one who would go and rebuild the temple. Okay, so this is relevant to us. In the process of rebuilding the temple, when he was speaking to Zerubbabel, he said this. He said, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You can go read that chapter when you go home if you want to be encouraged. It talks about Zerubbabel. You're going to go and you're going to rebuild this temple. How, Lord? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. You want to know how God works? You want to know why obedience is greater than strength? Because the paths of God are never one-to-one. It is never do this, and then you get this. It is never. It's an inheritance. Think again, back to the inheritance concept. I will give you $10 million when you die, or when I die, sorry. When I die, you get $10 million. Okay, what do you need from me? Make your bed, do your chores, be nice to mommy, be nice to daddy. Can you say that make your bed, do your chores, be nice to mommy and daddy equals $10 million? There's no correlation. There's not one-to-one correlation. But if you don't do this, you will never see that. That's how God is. God promises us bazillions, bazillions of riches and inheritance. But then the requirement is obedience. Abraham, I gave you some examples before. Abraham, many babies. Abraham said, okay, I'm going to sleep with the servant of my wife. Make many babies. God said, no. That's not how it works. You actually need to have less babies to have more babies. Joseph, you're going to be a strong man. 
okay, God, how are we going to do that? I need to make you weak. And to make you a slave, to make you a ruler. David, you're going to be a great king. That's great. First, you need to be a fugitive. Why fugitive? That's how God works. Never correlates one-to-one. If it correlated one-to-one, we would not call it an inheritance. We would call it a paycheck. That's what a paycheck is. We do not get paychecks from God. We do not earn anything from God. If your actions corresponded to the results, it would be a paycheck. It is not a paycheck. It is an inheritance where if you obey and you abide and you are in good standing in your father's house, all of this belongs to you. And I believe that about our church. I believe that we did a lot of effort for this building. And again, God bless you for your generosity, your kindness. Like, I cannot express it enough. I mentioned it to someone that we raised a half million dollars, okay, in four or five weeks. They couldn't believe me. They could, I mean, there are churches that were begging for a half million dollars for 10 years. And that is only a sign of your generosity and your kindness. Like, fantastic. But let's not think that our efforts are going to add up to that building. Our efforts were great. Our efforts were fantastic. But what we're going to focus on is not necessarily our efforts equaling that. Like I said, we're still doing effort. I'm not, don't take it that I'm, we're, we're not trying effort. But what I'm saying is we are going to focus much, much, much more, especially these coming days, starting today. We're going to focus much more on the seed, on the promise, and on our being obedient to it, and let God do the tree. We're going to let God do the tree. We're going to focus on the seed that he gave us. Again, think to the example. If I give you a seed, all right, and you want a tree, what do you need to do? Forget looking at the tree. Make the soil healthy. Pull out the weeds. Take care. Water it. Fertilize it. Cultivate it. You know, do whatever you need to do to the soil, to the seed. Make the seed healthy. The fruit is inevitable. We're going to do that same thing here. How? We're starting a new series next week. And the new series is called God's Ethics. And like I mentioned to those who were here before, what this series is going to be is going to be a five-week series. We are going to look at ethics from God's perspective. Okay, And what I mean by ethics is our behavior and is, our, is the life that we live. Look, when it was, when Christianity was first starting, there was clear. There was Christianity and there was everything else. And the two had a large divide. And for people to go from one to the other, it was a big jump. And people knew that they were oftentimes giving up their lives to make that jump. What's happened over time is the two sides have kind of meshed a little bit, which is good in a lot of ways. I'm not saying that's bad. It is good. It's, it's a good thing that Christianity is more a part of the culture than it is like a, 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 you know, something outside and ostracized. It's a good thing, but it's a dangerous thing. Because what happens is some of the lines become blurred. And what is allowed by the children, the Bible talks about the children of men versus the children of God. The practices of the children of men start to mingle with the practices of the children of God, and you're not really sure if this is okay or this is okay. Is this right or is this not right? And what this series is going to be a five-week look at where God draws the line. Because very clear in God's eyes, he said there are two paths in this life. There's a path leading to life and a path leading to death. And he's saying the path leading to life is narrow. Not too many people find it. The path leading to death, it's broad and it's wide. And many people are fooled into thinking that being on this, they're going to end up here. And the truth of the matter is, there is no, there, these paths never intersect. 
what we're going to do is we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount, where our Lord Jesus Christ took what let's call the Constitution of Christianity. We're going to look at it, and Jesus said, this is my standard. All right, and we're going to look at it from different aspects. He's going to say, in the world, people say, as long as you do this, it's okay. But I tell you the truth, that this is my standard. We're going to look at it from different perspectives. Things, and we're going to draw some lines and some gray areas that you never thought was, that you always thought was gray. And we're going to see in Jesus' eyes, it's not gray at all. It's 100% black and white. We see it as gray because we kind of mix the two together. And God's eyes is not gray. My point is, we need to build this kingdom inside, not outside. We did our best with the outside, and like I said, we're still continuing and we're working. But now, my focus is not the outside. My focus is the inside. Because I promise you, I promise you, for this church, God has a great mission. Look, if I told you I have a $100 inheritance for you, do this. Say, ah, okay. But I say, for you, I have a million-dollar inheritance. The standard is higher based on the inheritance. Does that make sense? If I promise you a million dollars, I have the right to ask a little more of you. I have the right to draw the line a little bit higher. I believe that God has a rich inheritance for us as a church. God wants to do great things for this church. And if you don't believe that, you haven't been around here long enough. Because this church is doing great things. Not because of me, but because of us. God wants to do great work in this community through this church. God wants to transform this community, Arlington community, Washington, D.C., metropolitan area, through the work here. God wants to transform what we in this country call the Orthodox Church. And as so many people view orthodoxy and as this weird, cultish, kind of guy dressed in black kind of a thing. And God wants to make orthodoxy relevant and applicable and accessible to so many. And God is using this church to do that. And forget about all those things. Forget about all those things. You know what God really wants to do? God wants to build you and build me. He wants me to grow more and more. Not just to be content that I'm a member of the household of God, but to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To every day increase. God wants this place to be a place like I have, I don't want to say I have a dream, but I have a dream. I have a dream that like this place, when I dream about the future of this church, I do not, I promise you, dream about a building. I don't even think about a building. I dream about the inside of that building. And I see inside that building, people, remember our five pillars on this church? People inside who really love their neighbor as themselves. People who limitly accept one another. People who are living in true community with one another, just like the early church did. And not just as a social club, but our second pillar is worship and prayer. The people who really worship God. And when we gather around the table of the Lord on Sundays, it's not just going through the motions. My dream is that people coming to really worship God and really experiencing transformational communal worship. And we walk in on Sunday miserable and depressed, and we walk out of there like we won the lottery that day because what happened inside that building? I want inside my dreams and inside that building people who are growing and learning more about Christ every day. Not content, just like I said, to be a member, but, con but, but striving always to be a mature member. Not just drinking the milk, but trying to eat the solid food and growing deeper and deeper and learning more about God. Because like we said yesterday, for those who were there in our ancient faith class, is you cannot love someone that you do not know. And I cannot say to my God, I cannot say to my wife, I love you, I don't want to learn anything more about you. I cannot say that. If I love her, I want to learn more about her. Well, same thing with my God, growing in knowledge. I, want, I have a dream that inside this church is people who are sacrificing, giving generously and sacrificing their time, their money, their energy, whatever it may be, helping one another and helping the church. And then lastly, witnessing. And this place would be a lighthouse, a lighthouse that every Sunday people would drive down Fairfax Drive or Kirkwood, soon Kirkwood, Kirkwood Road. People would drive down there and they'd say, 
something special in that building. Something's going on inside there. Like in the, in the temple, in, 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 in the Old Testament, there was, a, there was smoke that came out of it. And that smoke symbolized the presence of God. I want there to be smoke. You know what I mean? Okay, not real smoke. Okay. I want there to be something you drive by and people say, something about this building. I'm going to stop there one of these Sundays. This is a place that's reaching out and is witnessing to what is going on inside. Sorry, I get excited, okay? I get excited. How are we going to get that? How are we going to lay hold of that possession? Obedience. And that's what we're going to focus on in this series, and that's what we're going to focus on as a church. We want that. We need to read our Bibles. We need people who pray. We need people who give. We need people who strive for purity. We need to be people who turn the other cheek. We need to be people who draw a line and say the world says that if you do this, it's okay, but we say this. Because this is what Jesus said. That's how we are going to get there. We are going to build this church from the inside out and fulfill God's dream. Fulfill the inheritance. Not outside in, but inside out. And I got no doubt about it. Last thing. You say, how are you so confident that we're going to get this building? Because those who, like, I'm being very honest. I hope you all appreciate I'm being honest. That I was not always very confident. Okay, and I was, I told you, spoke about this a few weeks ago. I was discouraged at a time when I didn't know, and I was scared and pulling my hair out and pulling my beard out. And all. How are you so confident right now we can get that building? God gave us a promise. Okay, and the promise that I've been sharing from the beginning is this one, but I'll show you the one that I didn't share. First Chronicles 28.10 says, I have this now. Someone gave me this in a painting, and I hung it up right in front of me in the room where I pray and read my Bible. So every day I stare at this, and I take this very personally. Bible God is telling me, and I'm telling all of us, consider now, the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. And every day I'm discouraged, or I don't want to, or I'm scared, or I don't know what's going to happen. God says, hey, remember, I chose you. Be strong and do it. You know what happens 10 verses later? The rest of the chapter. This is why I have confidence. Again, it says, be strong and have good courage and do it. Do not fear nor be dismayed, for the Lord God, my God, will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you until you have finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. Seed is in the oven. Seed is in the ground. Just a matter of time. How are we going to get there? I don't have any idea. And the people, the, the owners of the building would really like to know how we're going to get there. And they're not too confident we're going to get there. And they don't know if we're going to make it. But in my mind, God promised. And God's going to see it through. Whether someone comes and gives us the money, which we are happy to do, okay, we're happy, okay. Whether we take another route, whether we investigate this, whether you know somebody, like, hey, we can do whatever it takes. But what we are going to do more than anything else is we are going to focus on our obedience. We're going to build that church from the inside out, and God is going to do great things. I'll leave you all with this image, this visual, of what happens when your obedience intersects with God's faithfulness as great things happen. You determine how big that intersection is. You determine the great things that God is going to do in this church, in your life, in your marriage. You determine that. Not by his faithfulness, but by your obedience. Let's stand together and say a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promise. We thank you, Lord, that you have spoken to us clearly and made it clear that you want to do something great inside of us. Thank you for not letting us
to just be going through the motions as a church, not making a difference, but for calling us to do something really great. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to walk worthy of the calling that we have received. That you would help us to walk in obedience to your commands, not blurring the line between the world and you, but making a clear distinction. And knowing, Lord, that our obedience will always be rewarded by your faithfulness a bazillion times more than we can possibly imagine. Thank you, Lord, for what you are going to do in our church. Thank you for letting us to be partakers of it, letting us to see the process from the start. And I pray, Lord, that you would really build our faith through this, that you would work a mighty work in our church, in our hearts, in our families, in our marriages, in our parenting, in, in everything, in our friendships. Work a mighty work, Lord, and, and, and let us to live as rich people, knowing that we have a rich inheritance inside you. We ask these things in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, with the prayers of all your saints. Hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you very much. Have a great week, guys.